You've heard me talk about it before. I just don't know how much longer I can, can avoid it or put it off. As time goes on, I find myself needing to squint more and more to read and to see what is off in the distance. Now, I wish that I could say that I could chalk this up just to living in sunny Southern California, that I'm squinting because the sun is so bright. But the reality is, and those of you who are aging along with me know, that we squint because in so doing we're trying to focus on what appears to be rather blurry. We don't need to talk about how it got so blurry, but we squint to focus on seeing those images or those words off in the distance that maybe in days long ago we could clearly see or read. There's another, another challenge that comes along with that lack of clarity or focus when things become a little more blurry. It tends to happen somewhat gradually over time. And so we may not even recognize it to the point that you actually kind of get used to it and you are inclined to think that this is just the new normal, this is just how it is, this is how everything will appear from here on out. And you forget how clear, how focused things could be. You've maybe experienced this as you've taken a, a friend's glasses and, and you put them on and then suddenly you realize that everything looks sharp and very clear in a way that you didn't even know or realize you could see it like that. I, for my part, am always inclined as, as we walk into Costco and you have the big, shiny, ultra UHD 4K, super special, great graphics and image picture television that you need because you don't have this at home. I can usually walk right past those because as I look at them, I say, okay, I can see the picture there. The one I have at home works just fine. I can see the picture there. But if you compare the two, if you put your screen right next to that one, you would see how blurred yours is, how much clarity and, and sharpness it lacks compared to that big, beautiful screen that is so focused, so sharp, so vivid. This morning, as we talk about that, I suppose this lack of focus uh, is something that we could probably fake it in a number of different areas in our lives and get away with it just fine. But that isn't the case when it comes to our, our spiritual lives. Spiritually speaking, to put off this lack of focus or to be okay with that blurriness could potentially have devastating results. And so this morning and the weeks ahead, our prayer is that, that God would grant us a greater clarity, a more uh, bring our spiritual lives into focus. And, and the first thing we look at, as you heard in the children's message this morning, is friendships, focusing on friendship something that we all crave, that we all appreciate. And yet, here's kind of an ironic thing. We are as connected to as many people as any generation ever has been in the history of the world. You know more people than anybody before you ever has. And yet, you have fewer friendships than anybody ever has. How can it be that we are so connected to so many people and yet still crave, still long for deep, meaningful friendships? How can we be so isolated while we are so connected to the rest of the world? We appreciate this concept, this notion of friendship. We, we crave it. Uh, whether or not you've watched the series 
uh, or just heard about it because it's, it's everywhere uh, all the time. The, the series Stranger Things, you can argue about what is so great about that if you've seen it or why you don't need to watch it. But one of the driving themes in that show that makes it, I'm convinced, so successful and popular is the friendship that exists amongst the four boys, the four main characters in that. And you think back to movies and stories, Lord of the Rings and so many others, what is it that drives those storylines? It's a deep friendship, a meaningful relationship with others that all of us craves. We all want that. We all want that kind of friendship. So as we we look at that this morning, as we look at, at friendship, what do you think of when you consider or assess the friendships, the relationships that you have? Oftentimes, aren't we focused on how the other person in our friendship treats us? When you're reviewing or reflecting on the friendships that you have, really the first place we go is we think about, are they good at keeping in touch with me? Do they really care about me? Do they make the effort to get together for coffee, or is it just kind of the perennial, oh, we should get together sometime, but never really do? Isn't that kind of interesting? That that's how we assess friendships first, is we tend to look at how the other person treats us in that relationship. And only after that, then do we maybe give a little bit of thought to or reflection on our own behavior in that friendship. And more often than not, it's only in those cases where we know we've been the better friend. We're the ones that sends the text message. We take the time to pick up the phone and call. We offer to go out for lunch, at least in the friendships where, where we know we one-up the other individual as if we're playing this game of, of who's the better friend and we're just seeking to rack up more points. But you aren't probably inclined to reflect on your friendships where you've been the one that has dropped the ball. And so it's kind of like we are our own personal HR department when it comes to friendships. We are, are always interviewing other people to determine if their behavior is worthy of being our friends, if they treat us in a way that merits being our friend, or we're constantly giving a performance review to our existing friends to determine if they are ready for a promotion to the next level of friendship based on how they treat us. How disingenuous of us, uh, disingenuine, how, how selfish are we that the basis for assessing our friendships is first and foremost how others treat us and not how we treat them. This morning we had the opportunity to reflect on a very focused friendship. That friendship, the individual that we look at this morning, is, is Ruth. And as we look to Ruth, we see a very godly example of what friendship is. Now why would we pursue this focused friendship? Just so that we can, at the end of the day, be more like Ruth? No. By the way, did you notice how similar that account is to our gospel account today? The Good Samaritan, the parallels between them. We'll, we'll come back to that. But think of, of Ruth this morning and her friendship, her devotion, her commitment. What is the point? Why do we care about having a focused friendship? Because as you do, your own friendships and relationships will blossom and God's kingdom will bloom. Stick with that, that picture for just a moment. 
You don't have to be a green thumb. You don't have to fancy yourself a, a lover of flowers and all things floral. You don't even have to appreciate succulents. But here's the truth. Just about everybody I know, when they are given a bouquet of flowers or a plant, if you watch their reaction, you will never see anybody upon receiving a, a plant, a succulent, or a bouquet respond with, because that's not how we react when things blossom and bloom. They uplift us. They cheer us up. Even if you don't like flowers, walking into a, a nice garden or an entryway of a hotel where there's nice floral display and things are living and breathing versus neglected and dying, it brings cheer into our lives. Optimism, it is, is uplifting. And so is focused friendship. A focused friendship, as I mentioned, will result in, in your own friendships blossoming in God's kingdom blooming. So let's look a little bit more at the example of Ruth this morning. First of all, the example stands out because of the way that this account is introduced in the very first verse of Ruth. We're told in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, what you know about Ruth is going to make that stand out because if you know anything about the book of Judges, that was not the finest hour for God's people. The, the whole history of the book of Judges really was one repeated action after another of God's people rebelling, selfishly turning from their friendship with the Lord and pursuing friendship with the world. Rinse and repeat. The same thing over and over, another cycle of God's people disregarding their friendship with the Lord because of their craving, their desire for friendship with the world. Now, we could understand giving attention to friendship with the world if, if they were seeking to pursue those relationships with nearby, with surrounding heathen nations in an effort to turn them to the Lord, but that was not what was on their mind. And so, when God's own people have this sort of, of history going on at the time of Ruth, what, what happens in these chapters of Ruth, and there's only four of them, you can easily read them in, in one sitting this week, is going to stand out all the more because of the lackluster, undesirable, shameful behavior of God's people at that time. And that wasn't it. That wasn't the only detail. You notice as you heard it read from Ruth, who Ruth was, where she came from. Moab. Remember anything about Moab? Should we go back and, and do a little bit of a, an origin story on Moab? You know how they began? The, the beginning is kind of one of those ew stories. After God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot and his family were safely rescued uh, away from those cities before they were destroyed, Lot and his wives uh, got to their own place and they realized, uh, I'm sorry, not Lot and his wives, his daughters, and the daughters realized they didn't really have much of a prospect for carrying on the family name, which was a big deal in the culture at that time. So here's where the ew comes in. Lot allowed his two daughters to get him drunk and sleep with him and have children by him. And the oldest daughter, her son, was named Moab. From my father is what the word or the name means, Moab. And that's not the only example or experience of, of Moab in the Old Testament. If you remember the account of a talking donkey, remember Balak 
the king and Balaam, the prophet that, that Balak tried to secure to have him pronounce curses on Israel, which he couldn't do because God wouldn't allow it. All he could do was pronounce blessings on him. But do you remember where King Balak was from, who opposed Israel? Sure enough, you guessed it, Moab. So not only does this account stand out because of the, the, the shady history of God's people at that time, during the time of Judges, but on top of that, here you have a, a lady, a woman from Moab of all places that God holds up as the example. And I told you we'd come back to it. Do you see the parallels with the account of the Good Samaritan? Sometimes when God wants to make a point, he really makes a point and he'll use the least expected person to do what what he calls us to do, to shame us, to say, look, even, even those heathens, even the unbelievers, get what you guys don't get, as you heard in the gospel. You'd expect the priest, you'd expect the Levite to help the man that was, was left for dead, beaten, robbed on the road, and, and instead they walk right past him. And the last person you'd expect to help him is the one that does it, the Samaritan, enemies to his, despised by the Jews. And he helps this man. God's trying to make a, a point. This is what focused friendship looks like. And sometimes we have to look outside of ourselves even to see it. Now this account of Ruth, as you heard it, just to kind of summarize it, Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. So Naomi had, unfortunately, had her husband die. She was a widow. And as was mentioned in the reading, she had two sons who married, uh, who married Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, not different name, Orpah. And then some 10 years later, what happened? Her two sons died too, Naomi's sons. So that might not be as devastating today, but it certainly was back then because to lose your husband and to lose your only sons was to lose your breadwinners, your system of support and providing for you. So Naomi was not in a good place to be widowed and without any male sons to take care of her and provide for her. As they make their way back, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, she finally stops and says, no, you guys don't come with me. You still have your lives ahead of you. You still have an opportunity for a fresh start to make a, a name for yourselves, to, to get married, to have a family. Uh, go do that. Go back to your own people and your own nation and do that. And with that encouragement, Orpah does that very thing and nobody can really blame her. But it's also in light of Orpah's choice that Ruth stands out yet again, shining as this beacon, this beautiful example of focused friendship. This is how committed Ruth was to her mother-in-law, Naomi. In verse 16, we're told, Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That is a beautiful commitment. Ruth was committed to Naomi not out of expecting anything in return. Ruth did not gauge or assess her relationship with Naomi saying, well, if I go with her, then here's what I might gain or benefit from that. Her commitment to choosing to follow Naomi, her focused friendship to her mother-in-law 
was purely out of her mother-in-law's need to love and to serve, to even put Naomi's entire life ahead of Ruth's own future. That, dear friends, is commitment and focused friendship. And through that relationship that, that Ruth committed to with Naomi, just as we said, the relationship that Ruth had blossomed. And read through the rest of the chapter and you'll see how it blossomed. But, but here's the beautiful thing. Not only through Ruth did God provide for and bless Naomi physically, but more importantly, through Ruth, God blessed all people spiritually. Because as you read the rest of Ruth and it unfolds, God did bless her relationship. She met Boaz. And through their relationship, through their marriage, Ruth gave birth to David's grandpa, Obed, who then gave birth to Jesse, who was the father of David. And through this relationship, just as we said, this focused friendship, again, not only was Naomi and Ruth both blessed in their relationship that blossomed, but God's kingdom bloomed because through that relationship, ultimately through that focused friendship, all people would come to know their Savior. And all people would come to know somebody that, that shows a, a level of focused friendship from Jesus that we could never, ever experience anywhere else. A determination, again, as we follow through the Gospel of Luke, that sees Jesus resolute in his determination to do what was best for you and me, for his friends, not on the basis of what he would get from us in return, not on the basis of some performance that he expected of us, but because his focused friendship with us was so determined to only carry out what was in your best interest and my best interest, our salvation. The father was willing to give his son to be forsaken and abandoned so that you could be forgiven and absolved. All of this because of that focused friendship. Now think of that devotion, that commitment that, that Jesus has for you. And how do we treat our friendship with Jesus? Do we remain in, in good communication with him? Or is he the one that has to initiate it? Do we give him time and attention as we do in the friendships and relationships that we value? Or do we neglect him? Does he have to be the one calling us back again and again and again, and, and you look and, and you would have to conclude, as I do and all of us would, that we fall flat on our face in terms of our friendship with Jesus. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Jesus still chooses to call us and treat us as best friends with unwavering resolve to do what we needed. Because his relationship, his friendship with us is grace-driven, not performance-driven not requiring or expecting anything from us, but driven by his grace, his undeserved love, his commitment to us. Now, this might seem like a silly question, but how does that make you feel in your relationship with Jesus to know that your friendship with him is based on his grace to you and on nothing else? Maybe it's an understatement, but it feels pretty good, doesn't it? To know that I can't mess that friendship up because it's driven by his grace. I want you to stop and think 
if that's how you feel about it, how do you think others in this world might feel to be on the receiving end of that kind of a grace-driven friendship? One that more likely than not, they are going to first experience through one of Jesus' followers. Do you think that would make a difference for them to have a, a relationship that's unlike the rest of their friendships in the world? One that isn't based on what have you done for me lately, but one in seeing a, a Christian just love and serve and care about them unconditionally just because they are a human being that we are called to care for and love. Do you think that sampling that kind of friendship would make a difference in their life? Do you think they would appreciate feeling that? Samples work, don't they? You go to Baskin-Robbins and you can you get as many of those little pink spoons, little samples as you want. And eventually, if you get enough samples, you're going to find one that you like and you're going to say, ah, oh, that's the one. If that works for Baskin-Robbins, do you think that it could work in God's plan for salvation in, in focused friendships that, that if a person here on earth is going to first experience a grace-driven friendship through God's people, that eventually that taste, that sample might leave them craving more? A deeper friendship that will last far longer than any that you can give them? And a grace-driven friendship that might radically change their opinion of Christians? having only been fed a, a negative narrative to see and experience firsthand, this is focused friendship. This is grace-driven friendship. So if you enjoy how that feels with, with Jesus and you think that sampling that kind of friendship for others, that it might make a difference in their lives, then will you join me in committing to not only our existing friendships, but also being intentional in establishing new friendships for the very specific purpose of letting them sample grace-driven friendship with us so that God may very well use that to lead them to an eternal grace-driven friendship with Him. May God bless our efforts in carrying out focused friendship. Amen.